Welcome to the show today. I'm doing a little er bit of an earlier show today, which is kind of fun. I um, had my second COVID shot this afternoon, so if I start looking tired, that's probably why. But I've got a great guest tonight. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have this gentleman on, Mr. Doug Elwell. Um, I'm going to let him tell you about himself, but I'll tell you, he talks. I heard him on another radio show talking about Planet X, and it was absolutely fascinating. Doug, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me on. Great. Um, well, why don't you tell everybody about yourself, sir? Well, I, I work as a, uh, a web developer and a web development field. I've been doing that for about 24 plus years now. Uh, along the same time, I've actually started doing research in ancient mysteries uh, back in the 1998, I believe it was, around about a year after I started doing web development as a career path. And I developed a, a website called Mysterious World, which was a travel guide to exotic travel destinations around the world. I, had, I don't publish it anymore, but I still have it archived at uh, mysteriousworld.com. Still there, still available. The uh, flash elements don't work in most browsers anymore, but the text and images are still there, so you can still read it. wrote a number of articles there about uh, Atlantis, uh, the pyramids, the Sphinx, and most famously, the giants. And the giants were, the, and the giants were so popular, uh, the articles on giants were so popular that actually uh, the four articles that wrote on the giants brought in more uh, traffic and all the other articles combined. And so I started following that path more. I, uh, I also got uh, an offer to write a book on the Giants. I'm, I'm still uh, still writing it. Uh, a few years ago, I got that offer. Should have it published by the end of this year or probably or possibly next year. Um, I've been putting it off for years and years because my career has been colliding with my ability to, to write. And so my book on the Giants will I'd not be out for a little bit longer, but I have it mostly done, so it's, it's on its way. Uh, but most importantly, about 10 years ago, and this is about uh, kind of in my life's work to this point, uh, 11 years ago, I actually wrote a book about Planet X, and I that published, got that published through a, a, a small publisher in uh, uh, Missouri, and they uh, uh, helped me promote it, and it's been online, available on Amazon.com for about 10 years now. Uh, 11 years. You can actually go to planet-x.info, that's planet-x, planet-x.info, and uh, you can get a link to buy it on Amazon.com. There's also some free articles on that website as well. Uh, I've been following that idea since the uh, late 1980s uh, when I came across a book written by uh, a man named Zechariah Sitchin, and then he posited that uh, the... Uh, oh, sorry. In the in, in, uh, the, uh, the world was originally, uh, the Earth was actually substantially modified by a planet called uh, 
by astronomers called Planet X, which some believe entered into our solar system in ancient times and actually interacted with the outer planets and also the also the inner planets, including Earth. And when that happened, a lot of the uh, axial tilts and uh, the the moons and satellites and and things of that nature were altered with the outer planets, and that's why we have all of the outer planets from um, from Jupiter on outwards, all of axial tilts, relative to rapid rotation rates, lots of moons and satellites, and ring and ring systems, because this uh, planet had intruded into our solar system, possibly early in its formation when it was inside of a solar nebula, and there was the solar systems are relatively close to each other and sometimes interacted. And sometimes they traded planets, and in this case, we probably picked up a planet from another solar system, which was brought into our solar system and was attracted by the outer planets. And it was pulled into our the gravitational well of the sun and remains as a member of our solar system to this day. Uh, scientists refer to this planet as a hypothetical planet uh, called Planet X. And they more recently have changed that name to Planet 9 because it is believed that the planet Pluto is no longer uh, was not an original member of our solar system. It's actually a satellite that was torn out of Neptunian orbit by this planet X, which gravitationally removed it from Neptune's orbit and gave it its own independent orbit around the sun. Uh, that's why it is believed that this planet, uh, planet X, was actually came in from beneath the, uh, the plane of the ecliptic because uh, it, it actually... The planet Pluto actually has an orbit that goes above and below the plane of the ecliptic, which is the plane in which the, the, the planets revolve. And so the fact that Pluto has an orbit that goes above and below the plane of the ecliptic and also has an elliptical orbit, which takes it inside and outside of the orbit of Neptune, where it originated, and they, just, they deduced from that that there was a planet that came into our solar system from beneath the plane of the ecliptic. It was actually entered at a, at a relatively high angle, uh, perpendicular to the orbits of the other planets, because that's the only way the planet Pluto could have had that kind of orbit if it adopted the characteristics of the intruding object. And so from that, they were able to calculate that the, the object had a, an electrical orbit about 10 to 1 ratio, meaning it's about 10 times longer than it is wide, and it takes it well outside of our solar system like that of a long period comet. They also deduced from that the fact Pluto goes above and below our higher ecliptic, is that this planet also came in beneath the ecliptic and modified Pluto's orbit appropriately, so it remains kind of proof that there was an intruding planet to this day. And so I've been following that line of thoughts and all the other evidence regarding the existence of Planet X, both in science, the Bible, and ancient Near Eastern literature. I put together a book called Planet X, The Sign of the Son of Man and the End of the Age, where I document all this information in one book. Um, I, I I read something. I was reading your website, uh, you know, about this, and I saw that you have, were able to kind of link play. You you think, or rather, you surmise that Planet X was uh, seen during the the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Yes, I believe it returns every two thousand years. It is a two thousand year orbit, and the last time it appeared is appears the star of Bethlehem, uh, described in Matthew two. And the, the characteristics of the star of Bethlehem were such that it had to have been an inner solar system object, something inside our solar system, because the way it moved, described in Matthew 2, it moved, uh, rel it, it moved relative to the background stars. So it could not have been a star or a supernova 
or something like that. It either it, it had to be something within our solar system, and it could, I thought of that be a conjunction of planets, which is a popular theory. But the problem with that is um, conjunctions of planets such as Jupiter and Saturn only last a day or two, and they they only come close. They never actually uh, form a hugely bright star. They just create two smaller objects that are relatively bright, but nothing special. And then they pass by each other, and we, maybe a week later, they're pretty far away from each other. And so that really didn't fit the uh, the idea of, of the star of the Magi, because the Magi were uh, philosophers uh, who lived in Persia, that is modern-day Iran, pretty far northeast of Israel, ancient Israel. So it would have taken them a couple of months to get from Persia to Israel. And so they couldn't have followed a conjunction of planets because it had only lasted a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the third most obvious, most likely candidate is a comet. But similarly, comets kind of come and go maybe in a couple of weeks. Uh, and also comets were thought of as harbingers of doom and not of blessing. And so uh, they wouldn't have followed a comet thinking it was the birth of the Messiah because uh, the birth of the Messiah would not have been prophesied by mm-hmm. a comet. Comets usually presage presage deaths and catastrophes, not something like the birth of Christ. And so I had I had come, I had, as I mentioned earlier, I had come to a kind of a, a dead end as to what it could have been until I came across a book by Zechariah Sitchin called The 12th Planet, which was a book where he uh, hypothesized, it's kind of a fringe theorist to hypothesize that a planet, uh, the planet X that had been in the literature, scientific literature since the 1930s and earlier, he hypothesized that planet was actually featured in the Babylonian creation epic, uh, also known as the New Maelish. We believe the ancient Sumerians were aware of this planet's existence and that it came around every 2,000 years or so and that it had actually been instrumental in the creation of the Earth. And the Babylonian creation epic is actually a description of how Earth was, was formed by modern Earth was formed as a collision between one of our satellites of Planet X, this intruding planet, and uh, uh, and Earth in its original form and location, where it was originally uh, located in the asteroid belt, and that uh, and that uh, interaction between Planet X and Earth divided the Earth into two large pieces, one of which was moved closer to the Sun in its, in its current orbit, and the remnants of which were used to form the asteroid belts, inner Earth asteroid, you know, near Earth asteroids, and the comets. And, and also the moon. And so that, that answers a lot of the questions about how these things are formed. Uh, much of the debris left in Earth's original orbital station was left behind. And when Earth, the bulk of Earth's uh, uh, materials was moved to a position close to the sun, where it was then uh, in a perfect position from the sun distance from the sun to support life. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, like you say, scientists are now starting to think about this planet X, and uh, and I have read stuff you know on it as far as like like you say with Pluto not being considered the ninth planet anymore. Do you think that they're ever going to actually look for this planet? I mean, literally, you, know, you like they have the others. Planet X. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's out there. I think the reason they haven't found it, or maybe they have. Is because a lot of the debris uh, that a lot of the debris from the impact remains in orbit around the Earth mm-hmm. and screens out all the light, absorbs all the light, so you can't see it. I mean, it remains in orbit around Planet X. Sorry. Yeah. So the the other material that was thrown up into space was captured in Planet X's gravitational field, as you might imagine, 
and it remains in circulation around planet X to this day, radiated like a stealth planet, which is totally invisible to the naked eye, until it returns close enough to the sun where the process of sublimation occurs. And then that is to say the uh, sublimation is the uh, instant movement, instant conversion from ice to gas vapor. Mm-hmm. And so when it, when it gets closer to Earth, Earth to the sun, like with the comets, a lot of the water that was trapped that was also flown up into space by the science impact suddenly sublimates and creates a, a pair of gigantic cometary tails that spread out like wings and a tertiary one that's like a, like a tail on the bottom. And that's why you see in these ancient Near Eastern uh, cosmology, these images of this planet, uh, it actually has what appears to be huge, two huge wings and a tail. And that is um, actually a depiction of Planet X. You'll see an image of that at the top of the page on planet-x.info, where they, uh, that's one of the uh, images that the Assyrians used to depict this great planet. And it also depicts the uh, high god of our pantheon, who they named Ashur. Uh, the high god of the ancient Near Eastern pantheons from ancient Sumer all the way to uh, Persia was always represented by this winged disc. And uh, the Sumerians called it Anu, uh, the Akkadians called it Enlil, uh, the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians called it Marduk, the Assyrians called it Ashur, and the uh, Persians called it the Hura Mazda. And every single time you had the original time, the, the high god of the pantheons, whatever his name was, was portrayed, it was always a winged disc and sometimes even had the god, an image of the god sitting in the midst of the disc as if he was part of it or it was actually his throne. So this winged disc was actually considered to be the throne of God for thousands of years. And when the Magi came to visit, visit Jesus in the cradle and the manger in Bethlehem, mm-hmm. the Magi were the descendants of these peoples in ancient times who believed that the high God of their pantheon lived on a planet that occasionally came in close to the earth, close enough to be visible. And every time it came back to earth, it was presaged, it was presaged by major events in human history. And so if you, if you put it all together in context and, and add in the Bible and science and you know, cross-coordinate them, it becomes very clear that there's another planet in our solar system which has been worshipped as the most high God since ancient times by every major civilization in the ancient Near East, including Israel, even though they've forgotten, they also were worshiping the God on this planet since the beginning of time as part of that ancient tradition. It makes sense because even when you see the depictions of the star of Bethlehem, it's like you described. It's it's got the wings on. You know, if if you look at it from what you're saying, it's got the two wings on the side, and it's got the tail coming down, and then you know, but, but it's got the thing on. It's got it's got the point on top too. But I, I mean, it sounds a lot like what 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 you're, you're describing from the ancient texts. Yeah, that's exactly what it would look like too, and the depictions are remarkably similar. Over thousands of years, the depictions are nearly identical. It's always like this round disc with a cross shape mm-hmm. and uh, with wings on either side and a tail on the bottom. Some of them even have show depictions of, of water emanating from the central disc. It's like a wavy line, which indicates water in ancient cuneiform uh, scripts. And so they understood that these, these wings were formed by water. Uh, these well, they, They're like vapor trails, like comet tails. So they even knew, even back then, these were made of water, which is interesting. Uh, there's no way they could have known it unless someone from a higher power like God had told them uh, about it. And in fact, the Sumerian tales talk about uh, the god Shamash coming down and visiting them 
and giving them information about this planet and all kinds of different stuff. It might have been an ancient uh, a time that God came down the land so, told them about various things, and uh, including that existence of planet X. So this thing's so far out that they can't even pick it up with Hubble, is that right? It's not a question of picking up with Hubble, even though it's possible Hubble might be able to find it, because if they know the general area where it is, they could probably target that area and find it. Mm -hmm. The major problem with stuff, even with Hubble, is space is just so vast. And there's so much background material. It's so vast that you can almost, if you have the appropriate resolution and light gathering capabilities, mm -hmm. if you put a telescope at any particular part of space, it's mostly light, not dark. It's only the only reason you don't see all the stars is because most of their light is absorbed and diffused by dust and, and, and gases in between us and them. Uh, so it's almost impossible to find background objects objects in our solar system unless they move relatively quickly compared to the background stars. So maybe they can't find it, even with Hubble, unless they know the general area where it should show up. The other question I was thinking, is this in, is, is this in the orbit for the sun just like the rest of the planets are? Or is it, there's a, or is it, too, or is it way far out in the orbit? Like, you know, where... Um, you got you got Saturn, you got Saturn and Jupiter, and then you know it goes that it goes out that way. So is that it's it's beyond Saturn and Jupiter, but it, is it still in rotation? It is an elliptical orbit, which means it has a very flat orbit. Mm -hmm. It goes inside and outside of our of our solar system like a long period comet. You know, comets come in, come and go, and they're outside of the solar system for a very long time. And so uh, it's still, we don't see it for two thousand years because it spends. A large percentage of its time outside of our solar system or in the outer solar system. Uh, it only spends a relatively short amount of time within the inner solar system as defined by the asteroid belt. And I think the second heaven in the Bible is actually the asteroid belt, and it's also the, the line of demarcation between the inner solar system and the outer solar system. Some could also say it was demarked by planet Jupiter, but I actually demarked it by the uh, asteroid belt. And so it spends most of its time outside of the, uh, out in the outer solar system or actually outside the solar system. It only comes inside the inner solar system for maybe a, a decade or two. And then for the next 1900 plus years, it's into the, well into the outer solar system and outside the solar system altogether. And so even if we did have powerful telescopes that's so far out, it would makes it even harder to find it until it comes close, which only happens every once in a while. So, like you say, um, the ancient Sumerians knew about this. Is, is there anything? Um, are there any reports like further up in history? After you know, after, after the, say the story of Bethlehem, or are, has there not been any reports since then? It's uh, it's it's invisible for most of its orbit, okay. and it only comes by every two thousand years. Okay. Uh, during which time it's visible from to the naked eye for maybe five or ten years. Okay, okay. Just just curious about that. This is absolutely fascinating to me, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'm a space nut. So, so this is the, I'm a nut. No, I'm a space nut. So this <laughs> this stuff this stuff interests me beyond any kind of reason. How long did it take you to do all this research? I started researching it around 1987. I was researching it off and on, pretty intensively for about five years. After that, I actually went to grad school and I got a degree in theology Old Testament so I could study the Bible and its original texts so I could see if there's anything to the planet X theory and whether or not it would um, 
fits in, into the biblical model. And I found it, it very much does. And in fact, it's, it does so much that I was actually beginning to retranslate large parts of the book of Job. And I had to stop because it was taking, I was pointing so much of the book of Job. It was pointing towards Planet X that it would take the entire book on by itself to properly manage it. And so instead of that, I just put, I made uh, the best parts of the book of Job translations into that chapter in the book, this chapter six. Uh, book of Job, actually, I, I'm actually changing it from being um, just like general wisdom literature to the Hebrew equivalent of the Babylonian creation epic. Mm-hmm. I believe that the book of Job is actually a creation epic uh, uh, formatted in the form of a sort of a poetic uh, discourse between God and man about the about life and the creation and, and uh, you know, things of that nature. Uh, I actually believe, based on the data I've been able to gather, is that um, I found that uh, around uh, 2000 B or so, about 2000 BC or so, uh, scientists have found an asteroid crater in southeastern Iraq, which was you know, ancient or modern-day uh, Sumer. Sumerians used to live in that region uh, in ancient times. There was an asteroid that struck in the southeastern region of what is now Iraq in the marsh region near the Gulf. And if so, it would have thrown up a huge amount. Uh, it would have created a huge blast wave and a lot of fires and also a huge amount of water, which would have flooded out of the Sumerian uh, peoples, particularly southeastern Sumer in the major city, which was named Ur. And I found when doing some research that there were some lamentation texts that described uh, exactly that same event where they believe that the god in had hurled fire down and up from heaven to earth to destroy them and punish them for their sins. And the description of that event, which would have occurred around 2000 BC, because war and the Sumerian civilization historically were destroyed around that time, sometime after Abraham left and uh, was taken to, to go to Canaan instead. Because uh, the father Abraham was originally came from Ur of the Chaldees, which is what we call ancient Sumer. And it would appear that he was taken out right before an asteroid struck the region and basically destroyed with the, the, the Sumerian civilization and much of it. And it's that, what was interesting is that that is the description of the Sumerians and their lamentation texts, mm-hmm. the destruction and the fires and the floods and everything, the cattle being burned and killed, the people being killed, identical to the description of the book of Job with the, 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 what was called the wind from the wilderness, which could have well been a blast away from this, this uh, asteroid strike and the following fires, which burned everything in, of course, the flooding. And after that, the, the raiders coming through and plundering everything, the, all the defenses were down and everything was more accessible. All these events happened in order, in the identical order in both the Lamentation texts of ancient Sumer and also the Book of Job. And so I commented on the Book of Job that it would appear that the not only did Planet X appear around 2000 BC, it hurled down an asteroid which struck ancient Sumer and destroyed it. And it's the same um, event was also the chronicle of the Book of Job. Because the Book of Job kind of became what is called a Festschrift. That is a German theological term, which means a celebration text, something that actually celebrates a major event in human, history, human or theological history. And they took that, 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 that event which described the destruction of this man Job in this, in this region. Uh, they put together a number of different oral traditions and collated them into a single work, which they called the Book of Job, or it is called the Book of Job, I don't know the actual title. Um, but it, appear, it would appear that the Book of Job is actually a collection of creation material 
related to Planet X, both at the creation and also around 2000 BC when it came by again. And so this, and, and also the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation, I think, was also a, a creation, a festival text, which was meant to create, um, celebrate the creation of the earth by their high god Marduk, who appeared as a star in heaven and struck the earth and moved it to a location, uh, new location, formed the moon, um, and the, and the oceans and all life on, on the earth. Identical, nearly identical to the description of the Bible. And so it's so identical or so close to the Bible that the theologians routinely look into the ancient Sumerian texts like a memory wish to see very close parallels between the Bible and the ancient Near Eastern texts outside of the Bible. And using that, they've been able to get a much more accurate interpretation of the creation material in the scriptures. And that is what largely what I did in my book was I combined uh, ancient Near Eastern cosmology, uh, uh, science, modern science, cutting edge science, and the Bible, put them together in one book to put it all together. And that's what my book is all about. Did you, because you said you went to school, you know, I guess courses to, to, to study all this stuff. Did you talk to anybody uh, within the clergy of, of, of any of the churches about your theories? No, I, I felt that it was too radical. And in my experience, people in a church is not about uh, learning and mm -hmm. innovation. It's about doing what you're told. And new ideas are frowned upon, particularly if they're mm -hmm. fairly radical like this one is. So I knew I had to work within the church, but not the of the church. I needed to. And then as now, science is kind of seen as the enemy of scripture, not its friend, which it really is. And good, good science is the enemy of only liars. And if the Bible is true, then it shouldn't align with science. Not, you know, and we shouldn't be, a lot of what a lot of theologians do, they come up with their own theories about how the creation happened, you know, pretending like those scientists. And they come with these really bizarre theories and they stick because no one challenges them because they're afraid of the, the, or the social consequences of being seen as an outsider or a rapidizer. And so a lot of people just keep quiet and they just do what they told them. And as a result, bad ideas are entrenched and become normative over time. And so we have uh, the idea, and we still have the idea of people are still circulating, Christians are still circulating the idea of a flat earth because they claim their interpretation of scriptures indicates that the earth is flat because the you know, Bible seems to say so, but it doesn't. And this is very sad because it's, in some areas, not only are we not advancing scientifically, we're actually going backwards. And this book is also an attempt to fight against that, to let people know, don't, you know, don't fall back into this primitive barbaric thinking better. Use scientific principle, use logic, use reason, be rational, use uh, deductive reasoning and logic. That's what I do. I apply those principles to the scriptures and science, put it all together. And then I believe my work, Final uh, Exodus, Sign of the Son of Man, in the End of Age, is a definitive work going forward for our people to learn what actually happened in our ancient past and what will be happening soon in our future. That's interesting because just the other night I was listening to something where they were talking about um, Adam and Eve. And they were looking at, at that at, at that story and what the reality of, of science is for that story. And so people were getting into arguments, and I don't remember what radio show it was, but people were getting into these arguments about it. You know, because when you apply right. 
science to it, it, it it's a totally different thing as opposed to how, you know, it went down in the Bible. So it's interesting that, 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 that you say that that way. Yeah, well, it's like you need to apply real science. Huh? We're not talking about evolution. Evolution is almost religious. Right. In my opinion, uh, evolution is an attempt by scientists to come up with a secular religion that removes God. It's like God without God. It's mm -hmm. uh, they, they're trying to remove God from the equation, but still take on the authority of God for themselves. So they're, they're taking on the role of God. And what the problem is evolution is a joke. I mean, there's never any... There was never any solid evidence for it. To this day, there's not a single piece of evidence. But there has been lots of fabricated evidence, um, bad, uh, bad uh, theories, and outright forgeries. And it's it's a total disaster. And people can talk like they're descendants from apes, and there's literally no evidence for that at all. The entire reasoning is totally specious. Mm -hmm. And even um, believe it or not, the theory about how life was made was created was that a lightning bolt hit a pool of amino acids and suddenly life just magically appeared. I mean, that, that isn't science. It's drinking science. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. They have no idea. This proves that they're incompetent because they obviously have no idea how complicated even a single cell animal is. I mean, uh, paramecium or something like that, something a single cell, I think a paramecium is a single cell, has all kinds of specialized bodies, organelles, all kinds of things all of which have to work together perfectly in order for that thing to stay alive. It doesn't just happen. You couldn't magically create a paramecium if you tried for a quadrillion years. It would never occur. That level of order is impossible. You can't just make something randomly. Their whole their religion is based on randomness. It's very strange. And so I call, I call um, evolution a religion because that's really what it is. It's a secular religion. It's an abomination. It's an embarrassment to humanity. It really is. I mean, if you don't, if you want to have, I'm sorry if I'm offending you or others, but it's okay. I have, I have no problem with science, real science, right? But evolution, evolution is not science. It's sad. I feel human beings are spiritually, spiritual beings who are kind of in formation, not simply intelligent animals, and um, the the down downgrading people from spiritual beings to mere intelligent animals opens up the gate to all kinds of abuse and the degradation of humanity and, and the reduction of our, of our rights. And that's what's happening. All humanity is being downgraded to uh, a slaves or simply more than intelligent animals who are working for this ruling class and people who think they're better than others, just like animal farm. We're seeing this happen. And so I have a problem with it in every way. It's just dehumanizing. It's degrading. It's anti-spiritual. It's anti-human. It's everything bad in one package and really should abandon it. But people don't want to go with um, creationism, go with intelligent design or probably something that actually fits the facts. Mm -hmm. Don't go with creation, don't go with evolution because it just doesn't work. I wanted to talk to you about giants because I know you've done study on that. Tell me a little bit about the giants because I, I, I have a I have a story of, of something I read somewhere, but I want to see if 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 you know it links in, in, into what you talk about. Mm -hmm. Well, my theory on the giants is that um, is there, it's, it's, it just becomes very spiritual. I don't know how religious you want to get on your show, but I, That's I fine. can. Go ahead. Okay, I'll, I'll just go in real quick then. Um, the giants are basically foot soldiers in a war between God and Satan. Mm -hmm. Satan's creating additional soldiers in his war against God. 
he doesn't have enough angels to fight him. So he's creating more soldiers by creating giant humans who are stronger, smarter, faster, much more intelligent. And he gave them gifts of, of knowledge in the form of technology that they could use to build weapons of war to fight in there and Satan's war against God. That's basically my thesis, why they were created. And their secondary use was to fight against Homo sapiens mankind, which are the descendants of Adam and Eve through through Seth. Um, Abel, of course, was killed by Cain, so the line of, of, uh, of the righteous was gone through Seth. And Seth was a, just an average person of average height and build. He wasn't really special, strong, whatever. And as a result, the chance were able to outcompete them, uh, outfight them, outpropagate them, and uh, basically wear them down through this sheer force of numbers and power. And so near the end of the time of the world before the flood, uh, there is only eight people left who are totally untouched or untainted by the giant genetics. Because the giants were actually genetically modified. Mm -hmm. Homo sapiens. They actually call them Homo, homo gigenes. The, the gigenes is actually the Greek word for genetics. Because, and so really I call it genetics. I call them Homo gigenes because uh, giants are anything that's been genetically modified from the original Homo sapiens. And you know, if I'm taller or shorter, better looking, uh, whatever. They are modified, therefore they call fall under the Homo gigenes um, type of human, humanity. It's a type of human that's based on Homo sapiens, but modified. And so that modified version underwent additional modifications, mostly making them taller and stronger because that was more effective for fighting and, uh, and life in general. And so over time, this taller, stronger, more aggressive, more ruthless, of humanity, which was to not have morals and ethics hampering their efforts, eventually outcompeted Homo sapiens and whittled them down to only eight people. Uh, and so those eight people were saved uh, on the uh, God decided to send a flood to wipe out uh, the giants because they had polluted everything, not only themselves and their own genetic lines, but also the animals and the plants. So they were experimenting technically with the animals and the plants, and these animals and plants were getting loose. And, and, and causing problems with other plant life. Uh, and they were out competing healthy plants. Like they probably, probably weeds mm -hmm. and mosquitoes were the things that they were creating. And that's why we have those things now, because the giants created them. And so what happened was that all of, it, all of that had to be destroyed. All the, the giants and all their works had to be destroyed. The Bible says this, and also other ancient research texts, such as. Um, the Book of Enoch and other things like that was also the you know a book the Book of the Giants of the Woods fall from the texts from Qumran talk about uh, uh, giants there as well they're actually a very popular subject and these giants gotten out of control they were polluting the earth somehow and just causing chaos and wrecking everything God had created so he decided to destroy them and start with a new group of humans pure Homo sapiens. He had them create the ark and, and sent the flood to destroy all the I was just thinking giants. about that when you said that. Yeah, and the giants themselves, which was the most important thing. And so, uh, mankind was given a fresh start uh, in a new clean world, which God had created for them. And they started the process again. Uh, but then, uh, back during the time of Abraham and a little bit before, the giants began to propagate again the land of Canaan. And that was called in the book of, I think it's somewhere between Genesis 12 and 20. 
uh, Abraham uh, was told to leave Canaan uh, while the iniquity of the until the iniquity of the Amorites came to the full. Now the Amorites were an ancient peoples who um, invaded Canaan in ancient times and had corrupted the Canaanites to walk away from their god, who was named El, uh, and follow another god named Baal. Now El was a very um, moral and ethical god. He was very much the god of the Old Testament, similar to Yahweh. Um, El, in fact, God in the Bible is actually sometimes called El. And uh, the word for God, the basic word for God used in the Bible is also El. And so um, there's very similar, the original Canaanite uh, uh, religion was very similar to uh, what would later become Yahwism. Uh, and Abraham even met with the king of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem, who was the king of the Canaanites, or one of the kings. And he actually did him, you know, paid him homage and um, recognized him as a great king of uh, the land of Melchizedek, which means he was an exceptional being, like the high priest of God, uh, probably only outmatched by Jesus himself and maybe Moses. And so um, the religion of the ancient Canaanites is very similar to the Hebrew religion originally. And so uh, God revealed himself as Yahweh or Yahoo, and it was upgraded from there. But the Amorites invaded that land and began conquering the peoples there and making them worship their god, Baal. And Baal was like this giant uh, warrior god who would conquer and control everyone ahead of him. Probably he wasn't a god, he was probably a giant king like Og of Bashan or uh, one of the other giants. Uh, giant, the Og of Bashan was actually considered like at least 12 feet tall. It was huge and a classic example of a giant. And so Baal was kind of uh, modeled after these original giant, 12 foot tall giants who once led the Canaanites or once led the Amorites into their invasions in this region. The, the, the Amorites may have been an invading uh, Caucasian people from the north like the Sumerians or the Magogians, later Scythians. And uh, a lot of the giants were descendants of, of Japheth, the son of Noah. And so out of Japheth, a line of the giants came. And from the Caucasus region, they invaded in all four directions, north, south, east, and west. Uh, and their descendants are what we call the Caucasians because they came from the Caucasus Mountains. That's where we get Caucasians get their name. Uh, and so the Caucasian giants conquered all directions and entered into the land of Canaan and conquered the Canaanites and forced them to follow the new religion, Baalism. And so as a result, the Canaanites became, went from becoming relatively pious following this moral ethical God to becoming totally corrupted and doing all, call it all kinds of evil stuff. So bad that God and that commanded they had to be destroyed, not only because of how wicked they were, but also the fall, what were called fallen angels in the Bible had actually come down from heaven and earth during that time and began intermarrying with mankind once more as they had in the world before the flood as described in Genesis 6. And so um, the world of, of the time of Abraham was the second time that the fallen angels had come down to intermarry with women and create giants. And so uh, Canaan was turned from a relatively peaceful, prosperous and pious area to a wicked area where um, angels and human beings procreated together to create wicked giants, whom they probably intended to conquer and uh, destroy all, all human life, all, all homo sapiens life again. So this was take two of the original battle between the war of the seeds, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, as described in Genesis 3.15.
the seat of the servant being the giants of the land king. And so the the the, the, uh, the battle of the seeds between the seed of the woman and the seed of the servant carried on in the world after the flood and began again during the time of Abraham. And so what God did to get to stop this was he didn't want to have another flood to destroy all mankind. He instead raised up the Israelites to destroy the giants and take their place in the land of Canaan. That is why he took them to uh, Egypt to live in a relatively isolated and very healthy and prosperous area so they could grow quickly and grow a large number of people that would form a substantial army, which would be capable of destroying the giants. So the giants, uh, a man to man, the giants would destroy the Israelites. But a large group of well-trained and more importantly, spiritually empowered human beings would be able to destroy the giants because if God was with them and he had that spiritual power and possibly other things going on that we don't know about, it would require a God and a very well-trained army to defeat the giants. And that's where the Israelites were. They had spent a lot of time in the, in the wilderness, 40 years to purify and toughen them up. After the 40 years they spent in Egypt, they got sought and decadent. And so the 40 years in the, in the desert toughened them up and only the strongest survived. And that next generation was much more tough and much more, um, you know, lean and hungry, I guess you could say. And so when they entered the land of Canaan, they were much more able to defeat the giants. And they finally managed to defeat most of the giants. Uh, including Og and, and Sihon, the two great 12-foot-tall giants who who, uh, who lived on either side of the uh, Jordan River. And Moses took them as far as Og and the east side of the Jordan River, where he was told to stay. They defeated Og and you know, saw his iron bed today, which was like 14 feet long. And so he was one of these 12, they think, 12 feet tall. And but it was up to Joshua to cross over the Jordan and defeat and leave Sihon, the second of the great giants and take control of the land of Canaan. And so, and what was interesting at that part, right at that point, right before they're in to take on the giants, it appeared a, a, a very powerful angel appeared to them and said, you know, wait, let us take care of the giants. We will drive them from before you. You will come in and, you know, conquer what's left. Because the giants are so powerful, only powerful angels could defeat the most powerful of them, possibly because they had technology. Uh, part, of the, part of the concept I'm using in my book on the giants is that uh, the giants are not only genetically improved, they were also giving very high technology, even high by modern standards. They might have had stuff like guns and things like that, primitive, primitive weapons using gunpowder, or even something more powerful. And so they were difficult to control and defeat, uh, even by a very large army. And so God, the, uh, the angels had to go before them and defeat the ones that are the most powerful and had all the technology. And the ones that were left that were shattered and running, and the Israelites could probably take them on. And so that's how they defeated the giants of Canaan and wiped out that race, which was a wicked race of people who were like ancient giant Nazis, but also highly immoral liars and just terrible people. The giants of the ancient Canaanites were basically Nazis, what we would call Nazis, except followers. And they had no quarter, and they were awful people, and they were also cannibals, the way the people they conquered. And so there was literally, God didn't want to repeat the world of the flood where homo sapiens had wiped out. And so it was decided to defeat the giants at that time. They could prevent them from spreading further. And that uh, battle against the giants continued on through Israelite history all the way through King David, who with his mighty band finally defeated the remnant of the giants and conquered all of Canaan and Israel. That's interesting. The question I had was, and I wonder if it, 
might possibly be this, the the same race of giants only at a later time is that there was a story of some people that were rafting um, down the uh, Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, and they happened to look up on the side of the hit of the side of the you know the canyon, and then they saw this cave, yeah. and they climbed in there, and found you know um, skeletons of giants. Yes, it's uh, there's actually a, a, an article on the Serious World. There's, uh, they believe they found ancient mummified giants buried mm -hmm. in a cave on the wall of the Grand, uh, on the wall of the Grand Canyon. Uh, you can actually find that article at mysteriousworld.com/archives. I have all the old stories still there. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna look it up for you really quick here. Um, I thought that was a fascinating article. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. Pardon me. Yeah, it's called um, uh, the Grand Canyon. It's uh, I think it dated back to two thousand two. It's available in a serious world .com, um, slash archives. I also write a bit, a lot, quite a bit about the Hopi, the Hopi cosmology and how they saw. Um, the ancient world there's actually according to the Hopi cosmology who are native americans who live in the southwest in the region of the grand canyon they actually had believed the world uh, before this was destroyed by a great flood but they also believe there were two other ages prior to that one that was destroyed by fire and the second was destroyed by ice and then the third was destroyed by water and we're living in the fourth age mm -hmm. um I, I recommend that it's a very interesting read there i give a summary of their cosmology and um it's interesting because there appears to be a satanic figure in the cosmology, which is believed to uh, rise up at the end of the fourth world, the one we're in now, and take control of the earth. And that one is um, what we would call the biblical antichrist. It's a very similar figure. Basically, it's the devil who comes back and rules the fourth world and judges mankind uh, one last time before God returns and takes over. That's interesting. Sorry, survived this too. Didn't, um, didn't the bones from those giants disappear? The bones from those giants, a lot of them were taken by the Smithsonian and others and buried or possibly destroyed. Some people think that they were actually taken and dumped in, uh, they're actually taken and dumped into the ocean where they, you know, they probably never be found if they still exist. So, um, yeah, that's the Smithsonian Institution is probably a front for Freemasons who wanted to get rid of the past history, partly because the genetic material of the giants was a very important military technology as well. I mean, if you can create super soldiers, it greatly enhances your ability to defeat people because super soldiers have much better capabilities and their survival rate is much higher. They can take a lot more damage and survive much longer and, and generally perform much better than a typical human being. In fact, uh, even Hitler was trying to recreate the giants of the, the giant race of the Germani, which is the, the descendants of Gomer, uh, the son of uh, Jacob. The descendants of uh, Gomer, the son of Jacob, the son of Noah, eventually became what we know as the Germans, uh, the greatest of all the giants. Uh, and they lived, uh, the Gomerians, um, they, they migrated northwest from the Caucasus into central Europe. And southwest into Turkey, uh, two different branches 
southwestern branch and the northwestern branch. The southwestern branch probably entered into the mythology of the Greeks as the gods uh, uh, Zeus and uh, Mars and all the other, and Ares and also the Roman uh, Mars and Kronos and all the other ones. Uh, they were probably not gods, but they were giants who were in that civilization of relatively high technology, which made them look like they had godlike powers. And as a result, they um, were deified over time because people remember them as having godlike powers or the ability to sh shoot lightning bolts, which might be what we call a laser, and maybe some kind of um, electrical device that shot lightning bolts, you know. But I doubt it probably wasn't magical beings or gods. It was just men with what we'll call advanced technology. And the Northwestern branch went into ancient, there's now Germany. And they became uh, the German giants of legend and mythology. And some of them went north and became the Norse gods that are also giants. But Hitler's intention was to rebreed his ancient giant races. And so the reason he was constantly going throughout Central Europe, Poland and the other areas, like if we're tall blonde men and women, was that he was using them to rebreed giants. He even had uh, uh, professional uh, uh, brothels so that these uh, tall men and women with blonde hair and blue eyes could procreate with each other and rebreed the race of the giants. That's Hitler's art trying to recreate the giants, who over time had gradually integrated with local peoples and had created uh, breeds of humans that were relatively tall and blonde and not really as much as the giants. Um, so a lot of tall blonde people to this day are probably descendants of those giants and they wanted to know. That's fascinating. And I'm wondering, you know, thinking back to the Grand Canyon with the the giants, you know, the, the, the bones that were found there. Maybe the Hopi Indian, you know, it, it was a similar thing like, like like with the biblical giants because, the you know, the, the Hopi would, would obviously have known about them. See, so when we look at the giants, it was actually the giants of the earth. Uh, giants of the, of the Americas on a clay road. It was actually, that's where I talked about the Holocaust of the giants mm -hmm. and the Smithsonian Institute. And that's probably the one of the most popular because I wrote the most <laughs> influential. Yeah. Um, I even have a part here about Joseph Mengele. Um, and actually experimented with twins. Oh, yeah. Because he was trying to trying to fuse them into one larger person. So my theory about the giants is that they're actually a fusion in the embryo in the womb of two embryos, which grow into one larger person. And that's why they have exaggerated features and sometimes extra toes and extra fingers is because uh, the fusion between the two embryos is not always exact. And as a result, you have extra, extra fingers, extra toes, sometimes two heads or a couple of or four different arms and so forth. Mm -hmm. but I found there's actually in my research, there's actually one of the reasons I like to use the term homo gigantis to describe the artificially manufactured giants um, instead of homo sapiens is because there was actually a race of giants in Greek mythology um, called the Gigantus who had six arms. Mm -hmm. And that might be an actual fact that he might have had a race of giants with six arms, which mm -hmm. is possible. Uh, because if you fuse together three embryos into one, you get a giant that's substantially taller, plus they have six arms from the three, three different embryos that um, are fused together. And so I talk about that theory in the, in the article here. Also, I talk about uh, the Kurgans and their invasions throughout the earth. 
those are, but also the giants of North America, where you have the idea of the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. and all the stuff where there was ancient giants actually buried in the Grand Canyon. There was actually deep underneath the ground storage areas with racks and racks full of giant mummies that have kept and still exist to this day. The giant mummies actually were probably kept. My theory about the mummies and all mummies, including Egyptian mummies, is that somehow the ancients knew that if you could preserve some DNA for a long time, sometime in the future they could be reborn, and that's actually part of their their mythology. They believe that if in the future, if they preserve their bodies now, sometime in the future they could be resurrected and reborn, and that is actually true. We are finding that if we can find intact DNA strands, we could actually use them to recreate new versions of the originals. And so the ancients are actually right about mummification. If you mummify yourself, you could have a new life sometime in the future when technology comes back, as it does occasionally, apparently. And you could have a new life sometime in the future, not an eternal life, but a new physical life, which you can live it over and over again. That's their approach, is they, instead of having an eternal life with Jesus, you have an occasional punctuated life where you're reborn every once in a while to a new life sometime in the future. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, you also have done research on the Sphinx. Is that correct? The Sphinx. I believe that the Sphinx is actually the uh, covers over a burial place uh, with its very important, very powerful ancient artifacts are buried there. Artifacts from the world before the flood and from the beginning of human history or man and gods mingled together. And Adam and Eve, in my theory, actually were not foolish cavemen wearing bearskin. What they are were very sophisticated, very intelligent, very well-educated, very tall, strong, large people who were amazing and geniuses. And they've been taught all the arts and sciences uh, by Satan because part of the what they were talking about in the Garden of Eden was they were not talking about eating an apple. What they were talking about was the transfer of knowledge from Satan to mankind, who had um, given mankind this knowledge he had stolen from heaven in return for their worship. And so mankind, instead of following God and living in the garden, a simple life, pastoral life with little little real um, uh, stress and you know, a lot of leisure time and so forth, Satan sold them on the idea that they could have their own reality and their own civilization. Apart from God, all they had to do is use the technology that he was giving them to build it. And we are actually living today in that satanic promise, which has taken thousands of years to fulfill. Today, finally, in this age, uh, many believe it's the end times. We are living in a time when the technological promise or the technological bluff, the lie that Satan gave us in, in the garden is actually being fulfilled. And what we're seeing now that this technological promise of being independent of God simply meant that we would be taken away from God and given, and then Satan would be given control, control over us instead. Because in my opinion, these technologies are being, being given, even though they're useful, will eventually end up being enslaved. And that's what I think is the mark of the beast and the system in the end times is that in order to buy and sell, we'll be forced to use the internet. And if you don't use the internet, you will not be considered to be a real person, and you'll be outcast, impossible to, uh, imprisoned, impossible killed if you don't take this piece number. So 
that I think was the ultimate end game of Satan. He knew sometime in the future that mankind would grow to the point, not only in numbers, but in technological savvy, uh, that he could actually use this technology he gave Adam and Eve to enslave the entire human race, and that's what's about to happen in my opinion. Well, it's not just now time. I mean, when you look back through some of the great empires, like the Roman Empire, you know, it was like they, they were allowed to take what they knew, technology or whatever it was, you know, what they knew, and that was it. The the whole thing collapsed and disappeared. So, I mean, the, this has gone on, you know, over and over in the history of the world. Right. The technology, the technological advantages, the advantages of the technology gave to mankind. Mm -hmm. We were able to build high civilizations, but the problem is, is that these civilizations were always temporary, and they couldn't be kept up for too long, and they were never, never particularly high tech. They were kind of awesome. They built amazing things using architecture and mathematics and science in general. I mean, look at us today; we're way, we're way beyond even Rome, who was amazing at the time, and Rome was nothing compared to us. And so, but this is all based on technology, which is all based on knowledge. Which was given to Adam and Eve in the garden by Satan. So, um, and what the fallen angels did mankind was the arts and sciences. This is described at length in the Book of Enoch. Uh, and even though Enoch is not reliable, it's still it was still highly influential and actually quoted in the Bible. And so, uh, people like me who studied the Bible have uh, the formal theological training. We believe that uh, the Book of Enoch is a good secondary reference to study to understand the backstory of the Bible and get a pretty good idea of what was actually going on. So when we interpret the Bible, we can have a much better understanding of what they actually meant versus what we think they do. We have a tendency to interpret things from the Western perspective that is mainly Greek and from modern secular thinking. And humanism humanism is starting to creep in too. So our, our, the left has tended to be uh, interpret the Bible in terms of human costs and humanistic objectives, whereas in fact, the original ancient Near Eastern uh, and uh, Greek and Roman cultures were the primary um, culture of the background for the Bible. So if you don't study the ancient world, there's no way you could possibly interpret the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the reasons I like doing this is because it prevents the legalization of the text and the eventual destruction of Christianity itself, because liberalism throughout the world tends to lead to socialism, which does not like ancient history and tries to rewrite history and man's image, and particularly using the socialist perspective, which means anything prior to the 20th century pretty much has to be thrown out. And so I studied the Bible in such a context here, indirectly helping support uh, the Western worldview where we have freedoms and rights and our people instead of animals. Well, what you say makes sense because, you know, obviously we're creating more and more weapons of war. And at some point, you know, I, I don't like the thought of it, but at some point it seems like we're going to create something that's going to blow ourselves up. And so, like I said, what, what you're saying makes sense that, that this could be created by Satan. Yeah, well, Satan, this is Satan's work domain. This is, this is Satan's realm. This is the world that he wants to create. We're living in it right now. It's not, it's not a state that the uh, probably the most, the most popular technological infrastructure is being built by Apple, whose symbol is an apple with a bike taken out of it. I mean, how much variety can you get? Mm -hmm. This is clearly the knowledge that as Satan gave out of Eve in the garden. This is the technological apple 
that they took a bite of that they weren't supposed to. Mm -hmm. What that actually meant was is they um, Satan offered them knowledge, and they said yes. And this this idea is even is even remains to this day in the old aphorism. If someone asks if you want to know something, they'll say I'll bite, meaning they'll take a bite of that apple and learn that knowledge. Mm -hmm. People knew intuitively that Satan was not giving them apples. Satan was giving them knowledge. And it was, it was an apple taken from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So his office is not, obviously not a regular tree. In fact, both in the Bible and in uh, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, probably one of the most important ancient texts ever written, which is occasionally even referred to in, uh, in Scripture, actually the Kumai texts I believe reference it. Um, it was that important, uh, and it was thousands of years even back then, thousands of years old even back then. And so... What the ancient or eastern conception of Garden of Eden was not a garden just out in, under the sun full of regular trees that built fruit on them. The ancient or eastern conception, including the biblical conception of the Garden of Eden, was that it was actually uh, trees made out of jewels, of precious stones. And uh, it was actually in a cave underneath the earth, far underneath the earth, where there was a number of different trees that were festooned with jewels. And these jewels can be used to uh, access knowledge somehow. And my theory from that is that the tree of a knowledge of good and evil was not actually a tree. It was actually a supercomputer on a pole, like an iron pole. It was, it was like symbolically a tree of knowledge. It was not actually a tree. It was a tree in the sense it was a, a book on top of a metal pole, all of them like that. And a book was not made out of, out of paper. It was actually made out of a sapphire stone what we would call an optical hard drive. This is what Satan and false other angels and things, that's what they used to use to store knowledge, is they used sapphire stones and possibly other stones to uh, write data into them using a laser. So uh, that's, we've reinvented these, they're called optical hard drives. And sapphire hard drives, as I call them, can hold many orders of magnitude more data than even very high, very high definition hard drives today uh, because they use not only um, the X and Y axis that is, you know, across, up and down and across. They can also use the Z axis, which is up. And so you can actually use multiple layers of data storage as well, not just one data like you have with a magnetic hard drive. And so the tree of knowledge was actually this round sapphire stone, which spun and um, they used lasers to read and write to it. And that is what, what the fire stones were in the Garden of Eden. I think that it was, was it Ezekiel? 28 or something. They were talking about optical hard drive, which was glowing red when data was being accessed. And uh, this knowledge was used by Satan to manage the earth. And, but he had abused that knowledge. And what they're talking about in that chapter in Ezekiel about the king of Tyre, I believe it is, and how you know, fire came from the midst of him. They were saying that uh, Satan, or maybe one of his, maybe Cain or one of his descendants, or, or a more modern day Cain during the time after the flood had accessed this data from this hard drive and used it to um, attempt to conquer the world with the use of this knowledge, including what might have been what we call nuclear weapons and other high technology things, even something mm -hmm. like nanotechnology, which might be reintroduced in the end. I had a theory that one of the reasons that Adam and Eve had been released from the garden is that they, they had created nanotechnology, which got loose, and, and they actually invested dominantly in the garden that actually infested their own bodies. 
And when it says and and uh, I think it's the chapter three of Genesis, something like that. It says it doesn't say in the scripture, it doesn't say thorns and thistles will grow in the field. If you look in the actual text of the, of the scripture, it says actually thorns and thistles will grow out of your body or out of you. Uh, so the, the nanotechnology invaded their own bodies, and they couldn't get rid of it except for the use of sophisticated technological methods. And so it infested their bodies probably the rest of their lives, and so they had to leave the garden because they were unclean. And uh, this, these nanotechnological worms I theorized had actually killed their bodies and taken them over. This this is what is called the serpents. The serpent was not a snake. Well, it was it's like a tiny snake-like nanobot, which had slithered in through the bottom of their foot and taken over the body by replicating inside of it. Um, and, oh. and so uh, another, another, I got that idea when I was, um, I was studying the manna mm -hmm. at, at the time of the Exodus. And there was these strange little red worms that came up from the ground and, and devoured the manna. I was like, that's interesting. And I followed that idea and found that these worms were somehow related to a disease that invaded the foot called the Megifa. The Megifa is actually a word in Hebrew, which literally means something that strikes at the foot. And it was a, like a little disease that entered in through the foot, striking it somehow. And I made that connection that it was actually the same uh, worm that was eating the manna coming up from beneath the ground, that it was actually invading the feet of people and inhabiting them also and taking them over, causing this uh, to be taken over by this battle bond, basically. And I theorized that this was actually, the Megifa was actually a disease, um, not a disease, but an uh, artificially manufactured um, nanovirus in the form of like a very small worm or snake. Like That's very different, very small and difficult to see. It wasn't like a full-size snake that would bite you. It was a very tiny nanobot that might maybe only, only was maybe a few millimeters long, just large enough to see. And my theory was that uh, the Megifa, which is also equated with the disease of Egypt, um, was released by the fallen angels in Sinai in order to begin the process of polluting mankind again through the use of technology. Their intention was for this nanotechnology, nanotechnology bots in the shape of worms to crawl around, reproduce, and enter in through the feet of men and create um, uh, networks of fibers inside of their body in order for that Satan refused to control them. I got that idea from the uh, idea of, of Morgellons. Have you ever heard of Morgellons before? No, I haven't. Morgellons is actually just like that. It's actually a very small fiber. That it's, it's, it's a self-replicating fiber that people are finding that is growing underneath their skin. It's happening all around the world, mostly in the United States and the West Coast. So I took that idea of the Morgellons and said, you know what? And now to, that, that's obviously now technology. Look at it up. It's M-O-R-G-E-L-O-N-S. Okay. A number, a number of people have been suffering from the Morgellons and believe that it's actually some kind of a nanotechnology that's been accidentally or purposely released on the human population in order to see how it spreads. This, I think, was happening in Sinai and possibly Canaan as well. And one of the reasons that um, the Israelites stayed in Canaan for a while was that they were meant to move around and use the Ark of the Covenant to destroy all these um, 
nanobot servers slithering around them and purposely released around Canis, uh, around Sinai in order to get rid of that before it spread again, because I suspect, as it was in the world before the flood, not only did you have giants, all the place you had giants that were, um, in, in there, that had been invaded by technology, technology like nanoviruses, that could cause them to be controlled. And there's, there's ways to do that. You could actually do that. I won't get into it here, but that's technically possible and actually desirable for an army because if you could have an army of soldiers who are centrally controlled by a computer, you could eliminate the possibility of them rebelling or breaking in fear. And you could also make them much more efficient. You can make them move as one. You could send them signals to move in a certain direction or another from a computer, which would allow them to react much more quickly than sending out electronic orders, which would be more easily jammed and so forth. So I think what will happen, happen during the time of Sinai and the time of the world before the flood, and also they'll happen again in the end times. As that mankind will be invaded by this nanobot, which will be used, allow them to be infested by these bots, which will create wires, networks inside of them, which will really be able to release, able to release signals, receive signals, excuse me, from a central computer, and that'll give them orders and be able to much more efficiently control them. I believe that people will take the mark of the beast once they get that mark. Uh, the scorpion or the uh, the horde of locusts and stings that come out of the uh, out of hell in Revelation nine are actually in, actually injecting a payload of Morgellons type uh, nanotechnology, which will invade the body, replicate itself, hook up with that uh, chip on their head or hand, and actually allow that chip to locally control them. Uh, that chip, of course, will have also generate fires, which will form antennas, which will allow it to uh, communicate with uh, a central computer through satellites or relay stations. That's probably the main, one of the main reasons we're actually building all these 5G stations as they're going to use that to control us. Those who take the mark of the beast through the use of this nanomining. So um, that is a theory I have about how that happens. One of the other reasons I, I like that idea is that it says those who, take, those who take the mark will not be able to control themselves. They won't even be able to to kill themselves, because the only way that could be true is if they were no longer able to control their own bodies, and therefore, there has to be a reason for that. And I suspect the reason is through the use of this nanotechnological fibers and the embedded chip in the mark of the beast, that they will actually be able to remote control humans, and the people in the end times who take the mark will actually be able to be remote controlled and will no longer be able to control their own bodies if the government wants to control them. And so that that series of, of data points, I thought, even though it seemed to be outlandish, actually makes a lot of sense. And the technology exists, and that's exactly what they what the government want to do. Any government want to have total control of its populace, mm -hmm. particularly during the wartime, and specifically if you're making war against God, who's literally on its way. And so what they'll do is they'll plant the chip, inject the uh, the nanovirus, and then. Um, They'll use humanity to fight, fight the war against God, who's coming back to take control of the earth. That's their only chance they have of doing it. Otherwise, people would probably not fight that war. Because why? I mean, you're fighting against God. You have no chance against God. And so they're going to fight that war by literally enslaving mankind using technology. And I say we're about three quarters away there now. Here's a question I have. So, you know, with all that's going on with the droughts and the flooding and the big fires, haven't we already started our 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 
path towards the end of times? I don't know if we have more fires and droughts or if we just know more about them. I think that a lot of this, you know, increase in earthquakes and floods, there's not so much an increase in earthquakes and floods, it's an increase in knowledge. It used to be 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, we wouldn't know most of what was going on. And so it's not an increase in fires and floods and earthquakes, it's an increase in, in knowledge. Mm -hmm. and the book of Daniel even says that. There'll be a great influence at the end of the book of Daniel. There'll be a great increase in knowledge, and many will run to and fro gathering knowledge. And so I think it's, we won't have a real upsurge in earthquakes and things like that until the end times. What they're talking about the end times is not an upsurge in just earthquakes just happening. What they're talking about is an upsurge and asteroid strikes and gravitational pulls from passing planets and that sort of thing. But the Bible says the earth will reel, reel to and fro like a booth. I think what will happen is, unlike in the past when planet X only passed as close as the asteroid belt, where it originally struck, where it originally interacted with Earth in its original orbit, uh, it'll actually possibly because of being uh, interacting with Jupiter or Saturn or one of our other outer planets, it will have its orbital path reduced to only about a thousand years and it'll come much closer to Earth. And as a result, there will be massive cataclysms based on uh, planet X passing relatively close to Earth, maybe, you know, maybe a couple, of million, a couple of million miles or less, which is relatively close, or even less than that. And if it got that close, it would have a significant gravitational effect on Earth, causing all kinds of type of shifts. Mm -hmm. And also it would trigger a lot of earthquakes because a lot of the earthquakes are just waiting for an excuse to go. And if a planet like that size passed near it, it might trigger that earthquake. And so the end times is not so much an increase in earthquakes just because it's the end times. There are causes of the factors that caused these earthquakes and the blood, the fire, and the poison smoke and all the rest. These are asteroids striking. This is by next passing year causing powerful tidal uh, gravitational shifts. So these are causes to, for these things. And um, the blood, the fire, and the pillars of smoke, by the way, uh, in ancient times, possibly before the creation of the Earth in its present form, asteroids would, like large asteroids would occasionally hit the Earth. And as a result, large amounts of animal and plant material would be thrown up into space. And so when you say blood and fire and pillars of smoke, what's happening is the blood part is probably this pulverized animal material, mm -hmm. which is simply falling back to Earth, uh, reconstituting with water and forming a blood red ring, which is made of animal, which is made of, basically made of animal blood and flesh. And so when it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere, uh, it'll fall in the form of blood, which is actual blood, and then fire from the meteorite and pillars of smoke, which are uh, a mushroom cloud that forms when the asteroid strikes the Earth. And so you're talking about um, objects falling from the sky or objects in the sky otherwise influencing Earth, not just an increase in earthquakes. I personally think the increase in earthquakes and floods and all the rest, it's just, it's, it's just fear porn that people use to sell books. That's all it is. Uh, sorry, and, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if you do that. No, 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 that. no, 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 that's fine. That's, that's fine. That's what you're I, on I, here. That's why I have they, you on here. Thank you. That's good. Because a lot of these guys, they, just, they play up fears. People mm -hmm. are finding poorly, they're terrible books and are wrong, a lot of them. <laughs> and I'm sorry, in my opinion. 
And we've had a lot of bad books sold by a lot of important people. And they've filled people's heads with a lot of garbage. And boy, they made a lot of money off of it. Let me tell you. I can imagine. Uh, I can imagine. Yeah, and so I've been, I'm coming into a conflict more and more with evangelical and Christian publishers who do the same thing. Because it's highly unethical to do this, particularly if you're making a lot of money, in my opinion. Absolutely. How can people get a hold, a hold of you if they want to reach you? Or uh, or what's your website again? Website is uh, planet-x.info. That's planet-x.info. Uh, you can also uh, find my Mysterious World page on Facebook. Uh, you can also go to mysteriousworld.com uh, and click on the archive section, link at the top of the page. Or you can go to my Facebook page, Mysterious World. Just type in Mysterious World, and there's also a Planet X page. Um, I think and my personal Facebook page is facebook.com slash doug.elville. I think that's what it is. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This hour and 15 minutes blew by. Man, this was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And I yeah, thank you. You let me go. That was the much that was good to have. You let me go too long. No. Take up the entire time. Absolutely. It's fine. I love it. I'd like to have you on again at some point down the line. How's that sound? I love it. Okay. Fair enough. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have a good evening. Thanks, Rob. Right, thanks, Rob. Bye bye. All right. Well, that was a fascinating hour and 15 minutes. He was on the phone, so you can see I'm leaning over to the phone. I'm sorry, I it just did that, that shot I took today is just really t- really starting to kick in. But uh, it was fascinating. It's fun to hear people with different views on stuff. It's fun to hear someone, you know, apply science to, to, to the Bible. That's, a fir- that's one of the first times I've heard someone do that. So it was an interesting day. Tomorrow, we will have a show. I will not be live. Tomorrow, I have a recorded show for you guys. It's a good show. Uh, my guest is actually from Sacramento. Her name is her name is Melanie Channel, and she's a numerologist, and she does card rings. But she's written a book, and it's a numerology book. But it's a it's a really cool book that explains how you can do your own uh, new, um, numerology research and apply it to your daily life and, and stuff, and, and make your own choices. You know, you don't have to follow it, but you can you you know you can apply what's in there to kind of make your world a little bit brighter. Or see what direction your role is going in. I she has a good one. I even let her do a reading on me live on the air, or during you know, during the recorded air. So it'd be interesting. You guys can kind of check out what's going on with me. Um, but uh, thanks everybody for coming. And if if anybody's on the chat tomorrow, I'll I'll be on the chat. I'll probably be watching a baseball game, but I'll be on the chat on my iPhone. Um, I set everything up this way so that I could rest because I know the last time I got the first shot I was knocked out for like three days so I wanted to make sure that I had enough time in, you know in between shows to where I wasn't a zombie so uh that's what I did and that's why I did this show and then tomorrow technically you know I'll, I'll probably be on the chat but I won't be live anyway thank you for coming and I appreciate it and I will see you guys hopefully in the chat room tomorrow and that's going to be via YouTube so that's going to go up Premiere YouTube. And so I will keep putting the link up on Facebook for you guys. Just It'll look just like one of these regular links. And, and, and you'll see it. And that way you can join in on that one. Because that one was a fun interview to do. She, she was a real fun lady. And Mr. Elwell, I'm, I'm definitely going to have him on again. I'm just fascinated by what he has to say. You know, I may not agree with some of it. You may not agree with some of it. 
but that's what life is about. You know, that's that's why we all have discussions, is to go over stuff that we don't agree with, and we could learn. You can learn from each other. Anyway, have a good night, and I will see. I will see you on ch in chat tomorrow, six thirty p.m. normal time. See ya.